How awesome is it to come and celebrate what God has done for us? The Christian life, we celebrate it every weekend here. The Christian life does not begin with a big do, but it begins with a big done. Amen? We don't work for our victory. We work from victory. Hallelujah. Well, one of the things that uh, Martin Luther, who started the Reformation, did for us, besides teaching us that the just live by faith, was he also tr bridged that gap between the secular and the spiritual and let us know that work that's done in the field, labor is just as amazing before God if it's done in faith and if it's done in the love of God. It's just as amazing as going to a monastery and being a priest. He made that big leap for us. Thank God for Martin Luther and thank God that Jesus did it way before that. Amen? So our guest today is a missionary to athletes and spends his, spends his life showing those who are skilled to perform in the arena of sports, the love of Christ, and probably more importantly, how they can glorify God with their craft. He serves the New England Patriots and is founder and director of the Greatest Champion Foundation, which has been contracted to develop curriculums, team building strategies, and sports ministries all over the country. We'll be giving you opportunity to generously give to the Greatest Champion Foundation at the end of the service today. His highest honor, those to be a child of God, servant of Christ, and husband to Holly, and father to Houston Harriet. It's good to have you here today, along with your husband and dad. We're privileged to have him here today, by the way. Uh, he would want you to know that the greatest joy for you, for him today, is to be, and the greatest honor of his life, is to be a servant of Jesus Christ and a son of God. And his greatest joy would be to see your, your life impacted more fully to glorify God with the rest of the time you have here on earth. So God bless you. Jack Easterby, come and take this pulpit. Let me pray for us. Father, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. And you thought it was a good idea before the foundation of the world that we would be here today, so we are. And Father, in a world that is desperately in need of truth, we come today to your word, to the greatest thing that's ever happened to mankind, a fingerprint of who you are. And God, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, would you allow us today to be so inspired and caught up by you that, God, everything else is just details. Father, I thank you for every person here and every person's journey here and how you have brought us into an amazing, awesome moment where we are coming face to face with the greatest champion. And we pray in Jesus' name, the only name worth praying in, and all God's people said, amen. Phil, thank you so much for the opportunity to come today and to share. Um, but more than that, thank you for the man you are. And uh, you guys have a great pastor. You have a great pastor. And um, I'm thankful for that. Um, I can definitely relate to the opportunity to shepherd God's word to a group of people. And um, you do that so well. So thank you for your testimony and what you're doing here um, at this church. If you've got your Bibles, open up to the book of Matthew. I think we're also going to have it on the screen. 
But uh, as we enter God's Word, I think it's very important that we talk about how we view God's Word and where we are in God's Word before we get into anything else about what it's actually talking about. Today, I want to talk from the subject or the idea of motives matter, okay? I want to talk from the idea that motives matter. So in order for us to get to where we're going to be, let me just set the stage for you and where I think you'll help kind of usher this in to the idea that motives really matter. I believe this is a 66-book love letter from God to us, and in it is everything you need for life, and if you read it, it will change who you are. I'm going to say that again. This is not Aesop's fables here. This is a 66-book love letter from God to us, and everything we need from it for life is in it, and if you read it, it will change who you are. So when we look at God's Word, we actually look at the instruction manual for life and the history of God Himself so that we can try to do this game called life a little bit better. Now, I come from an athletic background, so when I talk about the Bible, a lot of times I use athletic analogies. So let me set the stage for where we are today in an athletic kind of way. So I view the Bible in three components, if you will. I see the Old Testament as a pep rally. Many of you probably growing up went to a few pep rallies, maybe before a big game, football or basketball. Everybody celebrates. You go to the gym and you're talking about the game. The players are coming. It's going to be a great night. It's going to be awesome. We're playing the, the crosstown rival. It's going to be great. I can't wait till the game comes. The game is going to be great. The band's playing, celebrating, a little warm-up music. Guys might have on their letter jackets, and it's all about the game is going to be coming. And my view is that the Old Testament is this pep rally. It's excited. There'll be a Savior. There'll be a Messiah. There's something coming, and God institutes or he gives us the background for this pep rally of this man named Jesus who is going to come because even in the first book of the Bible in Genesis, we see the origination of God's plan, the seed that would crush the heel, I mean, I mean, excuse me, the seed that would crush the head of Satan, and this broad brush is painted right there in the very first book. So the Old Testament is this pep rally. And then we have these four books we call the Gospels, Good News, the story of Jesus that is the game. Jesus is here. He's ministering. He's feeding. He's walking on water. I always say, you know, Jesus fed 5,000. I'm just trying to feed me and my family. Amen. I mean, this joker got it done, right? So the game was going on. And as he goes through this massive project to try to make a difference in the world, live perfectly, die courageously, and then be raised victoriously, these gospel writers record the power of what it meant for him to live in this life. And that is the game itself. The four gospels are good news. Why? Because we would be left to ourselves if it wasn't for Jesus's four perfect, these four perfect books of these 33 perfect years. So we have good news in the gospels. And then the after party starts, right? Everybody in here has probably won a game before where you go to an after party or you go celebrate with your friends or maybe you've been to a sporting event where you have that victory where you thought it was going to be close. We've been a part of a few of those, amen, right? But the idea is that you, you thought it was going to be close, but then the outcome is, wow. And you can only imagine, right, that Jesus' closest friends, when he dies on the cross, don't have a ton of hope, and then the outcome goes 
the way that they didn't think it could actually happen. And Jesus is actually raised. And so this after party breaks out and we call that the church or it begins in the book of Acts and then goes through the end to Revelation. So we have this foreshadowing of the game. We have this pep rally and then we have the game itself where Jesus is living this life and he's showing and ministering. And then we have the after party, a celebration of what God has done and why we should live differently because of it. So when we look at what goes on in scripture, we always have to catch ourselves. Where are we in this 66 book love letter that God has written us? And today we find ourselves in a very interesting part. The first book of the New Testament is called Matthew. It's called Matthew. It's written after, uh, named after its author, as we believe. And Matthew is written as a Jewish gospel to a Jewish audience of people that connects perfectly to the promises of the Old Testament. It, it, it almost picks up, even though there's an intertestamental period, it almost picks up right where Malachi and the Old Testament prophets have left off. It's a perfect seatbelt, if you will, to the Old Testament that Jesus really is the king that is coming. But Matthew's got something that's going to kind of dive into us today. He's got something that he brings up that is very important, and it'll make us laugh a little bit here to start. But as we look at it, it might stomp on our our motives a little bit because he's going to tell us and teach us that motives really matter. So after, you know, the Old Testament kind of concludes, and and let me give you this because this is very important. As the Old Testament kind of concludes... The expansion of the Ten Commandments had become into over 600 Jewish laws, and this expansion had become all about doing. You see, they had the Ten Commandments given originally by Moses, and then this Pharisaical, or this mindset of doing, expanded into all of these laws. So, for example, okay, I'm going to obey the Sabbath, which is one of the commandments. Well, what does it mean to obey the Sabbath? Well, it means you can't work. Well, what is work? It means that you can't carry a load. Well, what is a load? Well, a load in the right hand is this amount of money, and a load in the left is this amount of money, or amount of weight, or amount of trouble, or amount of work. So the idea is they expanded into all these laws so that they could create an opportunity of obedience without indicting the motive. You see, they expanded the law of God from 10 commandments that were made to read your heart into hundreds of commandments that were made doable without the heart being involved. So they expanded the view of God or their view of God from a motive-based reading system that God gives us in these 10 commandments, four horizontal, I mean, four vertical, and then six horizontal. And then they go back and they say, well, wait a minute, let's make as many as we can to try to make this all about doing. As a matter of fact, we learn in early in the New Testament, there was a group, Pharisees, and these Pharisees actually wore things on their head called phalanges, which were had pieces of scripture in. And they would walk around and they had these robes with these big tassels and they would walk around and they would probably talk and they would probably walk and they would, thou liveth in a holy environment. And I know nobody in here would ever come to church and try to fake the person next to them. But the reality is that they had gotten in a system of obedience where it never indicted the motive. It only indicted to action. So the power of Matthew is, I have to explain that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, but to indict the heart. Because there is a kingdom that's coming. And this kingdom that is coming is a team. And God's developing a team of people who look a lot differently 
And the way that I want them to grow is for them to know their kingdom is not going to be based on the way they look, the way they dress, the way they look on the outside. It's actually going to be based on what they believe on the inside. And if they believe in me, they can be a part of my team, even if they don't have a thing on their head, or they don't wear fancy robes, or they don't have a place in what we then, or what they then called the synagogue. So here's what Jesus does. Jesus gets a group of people that he's going to have follow him, and he takes him on a mountain. He does the first ever church retreat, amen? He does the first ever church retreat, and he takes these people who are going to follow him, and he brings them out on a mountain. Now, let me just say this before we get going, because we like to give the disciples this holy status, okay? The disciples were the first ever group, all right, of misfits, all right? These were the junction boys, all right? These were bad news bears, okay? We had Matthew, who himself is a tax collector, okay? We have fishermen, okay? This is a lot more like Fred and Bubba and Billy, okay, than it is any sort of holy roller, holy roller perfect club. He takes them out, and he's going to give them a exclusive or a, a, a systematic look into what Christianity or the establishment of his reign is really going to look like. And so he uses these phrase, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And he establishes what we now call the Sermon on the Mount with new standards that would eliminate these 600 laws that nobody used anymore and would bring it back to the matter of motive and the matter of the heart, so that you and I would not be living by laws that we can check the box, but would be living in a, an economy of God that actually checks our heart while we check the box. So the power of what we're going to read today is that motives matter. Now, all of us in here, right, have been to church just to say you went to church, right? I've been there before where you come in, you stand up, you sit down, you wave your hands, praise God, boy, heavenly father. All right, good. We got this. Let's check this box today. Let's get this done. I went to church. All right. And then mid song on the third song before the pastor comes up to preach, you're singing and what a wonderful name it is. And you're thinking, all right, where are we going to lunch after this? Right. And so you're thinking in your mind, everybody's been there. Everybody's been there where we're checking the box, right? Well, one of my fears, and I believe Jesus's fear of this passage, is that we not check the box, but we come for an intimate relationship with him, and we enhance our walk with him because we've spent time with him. Now, this passage is going to reference some money today, okay? I didn't come here to preach only about money. I came here to preach about motives, which is true to the pastoral, I mean, true to the scripture, Although I do recommend all visiting pastors that you get come preach on Monday. That way you don't have to do it. Amen. Right. So the idea is, right, that today we're going to jump into this and I'm going to ask you three questions today that are going to test your motives. Now, I'm right here with you as the preacher dude. OK, I'm not any better than anyone in here. OK, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. I believe that's a great attitude for people who preach. I am the chief of sinners. So as we look at this today, I'm going to share a few things with you that read my motives. Because remember, we don't just read the Bible. The Bible reads us. We don't just read the Bible. The Bible reads us. So we're going to look at a few verses in Matthew. We're going to ask a few questions. We're going to have some fun with it. And then hopefully when we leave, we'll be inspired that our motives matter. Let me say this before we get uh, actually read. Anybody who's married in here knows that motives matter. Amen. Right. You know, like I remember a couple of years ago, and, and this is, Holly may remember this, where Holly and I had a discussion. 
It's also known as a disagreement uh, in the holy way, right? And she was right, like she is, you know, 9.9 out of 10, amen. And so I decided as a way (laughs) to apologize, I was going to go buy some flowers. Anybody ever done that? Amen. Man, here, walk a shame. Ready? Go. Okay. All right, here we go. So I decided I was going to go buy some flowers, right? So I I bring these flowers to the the house and I put them in some water. Hey, honey, I got you some flowers. She responded, nice flowers. And I thought to myself, I said, other than donating $6.99 to the local economy, (laughs) I didn't do anything to fix my problem. And the reality is, your motives matter. So we can try to fix it on the outside. But the reality is, God is asking us, he's, he's, he's designed us inside out. We're inside out creatures, not outside in creatures. So when we look at this today, I'm asking you to ask yourself these questions in a very real, authentic way so that you can be who God made you to be from the inside, inside out. Let's look at this scripture in Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moths nor the rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be filled with darkness. If then the light is in you, is darkness, how great is the darkness? Verse 24 and last verse. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Some versions may say mammon, which I'm completely, completely fine with. Let's start with the first period or first little section here where he's talking about treasures, okay? First question of why motives matter. Number one, what is your treasure? Church, what what is your treasure? Holly and I were married, and uh, after we were married, the first year there, we went uh, to a postseason basketball tournament. We were involved with the University of South Carolina at the time, and uh, we went to a postseason basketball tournament. This postseason basketball tournament was called the Nobody's Interested Invitational. No, I'm just kidding. The, uh, the NIT, okay? All right, nobody, nobody gets that. But anyway, the point is we go to this basketball. Well, we end up winning this tournament. It was a blessing. The guys came together, went on a little run, go to New York, win it. Well, you get for winning this tournament a, a ring, and I don't know why they gave me one, but I got one. So we got a ring. And so I put this in my drawer and just kind of forgot about it. Didn't really wear it much. And about five years later, we were actually at a pregame meal. And uh, one of my assistant coaches comes to me and says, hey, your wife's trying to get you. I said, okay. So I I called my wife as quickly as I can. And she said, somebody has robbed us. And I said, oh man, what's going on? I said, I'll come home immediately. So I left the pregame meal and I went to the house. And I walked in and, and there wasn't a lot of stuff gone. There was a few TVs that were missing and we didn't have a lot to steal. <laughs> I bet it was the greatest disappointment ever for that thief, by, by the way. I mean, this is a random boy. I bet he was like, hey, we're in, Bob. And he came in. He was like, next house. All right, let's go. That's funny. That's funny. But anyway, 
the point is, he came in and he went in and he took a couple TVs. And one of the things he took was my ring, my national invitational tournament ring. And so as the masculine guy in the relationship, you know, you want to like get the guy, right? So there was a house next door that was doing construction and I was like, oh, it's one of these cats. I'm going over here. So I went over there and I took him lemonade. I was like, hey, y'all seen anything go on in my house? Like, here's some lemonade. Like, I want to know. Let's go. Anybody, any of y'all got a new TV at the house? You know, I was that real masculine, right? So then I started looking at advertisements in the paper the next couple of days. And I was like, you know, I'm going to look at the advertisements in the paper. Maybe somebody's going to advertise this ring. And boom, a pawn shop advertised an NIT ring. So, you know, I said, okay, let's see what we can do here. So we went over to this pawn shop. And I walked into the pawn shop, and there was my ring sitting in the front. And it was for five thousand. was listed for five thousand and five hundred dollars. Now the NCA limits the cost of a ring at this time to four hundred and sixty-eight dollars. Amen. So we had some big-time markup going on in the pawn shop. All right. So we walked into this, and I said to the guy, I said, "Hey, how are you doing? Yes, how are you doing? Nice." I said, "Tell me about that ring right there." He said, well, actually, man, this is, this is like exclusive. We just got it in the other day. I said, oh, did you? That's great. Just got it in the other day. He said, yeah, man, there was this guy named Chaplin. He scored 30 points in the championship game like four years ago. I'm like, really? Chaplin? He's like, yeah. He, as a matter of fact, he won the game. He was like the game-winning shot. So we, we got his ring in. His, his name is Chaplin. I'm like, oh, great, great. He, he, he shot and made the winning point. I said, yeah, yeah. So he's like, all right. I said, actually, I think that's the chaplain on the team who was actually just sitting in the fourth row and said the prayer before the game. And actually, that's my ring, which was stolen. And he looked at me and his mouth was wide open. He was like, will you pray for me? (laughs) So I was like, "Okay, all right, we're good. Let's talk. And so he gives me the ring back and I went home. And when I went home, Holly's like, Jack, quit worrying about your ring. Quit worrying about the stuff that was that was stolen. I'm worried because somebody has violated us. And I thought to myself, here I am chasing after gold and silver when my wife's security was the most important thing in the house. And what it taught me and what I want to teach you today is that our world has found a way to separate cost from value. You see, we have as a culture, we have inserted something between the two, cost and value. And cost is this and value is this. It, it might cost X amount of dollars to buy or to make a pair of Jordans, but then we value them at this. Or it might cost this for an old collector's item car, but we value it at this because we have inserted in the middle profit. What Jesus is saying here to his beloved disciples is, for me, Value and cost is very similar. I'm going to pay for you on the cross because I want to pay the cost for you because I value you. You see, what Jesus is saying here, very, very clear, is I want you to be careful what your treasures are because I want to be your treasure. He's saying to them, I want you to be careful what your treasures are because you are my treasure. So the analogy he uses is when you are intentionally involved in laying up treasures in a place that where moth and rust will destroy and thieves break in and steal, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. What do you treasure? What would you do anything for? 
What are you intentionally doing every single day that shows God that your motives are right? You see, we live in a world of collection. My, my father-in-law is actually in the storage business. And recently he was telling me about how the storage business has grown so much. He said, yeah, he said, actually, there's this huge business right now in South Carolina where he lives. He's like, man, we, we're actually adding buildings because everybody has all this stuff and they don't know what to do with it. And he said, the saddest thing happened the other day. He said, somebody passed away and they had six storage units rented for the next month and they had all the stuff in there. Nobody called me when he was in the hospital room for us to bring his stuff up there. Think about that. Those of you who've been in a hospital room with a loved one before he passes away. Nobody asked for their trophies. Nobody asked, will you bring me my ring so I can see it for one second before I die? No, 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 friends. What your treasure is matters. What's your treasure? What do you treasure the most? We have to evaluate our motives because if our motives is just to lay up stuff on earth, we've missed it. And that's what Jesus is saying to his beloved ones. Nothing wrong with having things that are valuable to you, but I just want you to know you're valuable to me and I want to be valuable to you. What's your treasure? Everyone in here, you go to sleep with you, you know. What is the thing your actions follow? What is the thing your actions follow? Is it being liked? Is it other people saying good things about you? It's way more than money, my friends. Motives matter. What is your treasure? The second thing he says here is very interesting. He says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be filled with light. You see... There's no accident that in the eye, we have a thing called a lens. You see, because the things that we look at, right, they affect what is going into our body. I laughed recently. My wife and I talk about this a lot. The amount of volume of reality TV, right? And many of us are guilty of it, amen, right? We're all guilty here. Not going to have you confess your favorite reality show up here, okay? Although that would be an interesting confession. Maybe y'all can do that next week when I'm not here, amen? All right? But I mean, we got reality shows for everything, right? We got reality shows for people with more than one girlfriend, amen? Right? We got reality shows for people with hoarding a lot of stuff. We got reality shows. And what it does, watch this, is reality shows take your mind into another reality to try to make you parallel or leverage yourself or at least imagine what that reality is like and you lose touch, watch this, with your own reality. Man, what would it be like to have six people like me at the same time? What would it be like for me to have so much stuff? What would it be like for me to have all this big mansions? What would it be like for me to blank? And the danger of that is that what you're doing is you're, you're falling prey to what we call comparison. See, my passion is that comparison is the thief of all joy and the death of contentment because there's always something next. And so what the devil tries to do with us is have our eyes look at things that we will then worship and our worship will then become corrupt and then our actions and our body, like he says, with darkness will then become corrupt. The whole book of 1 John talks about this, that we have to be careful what we look at because the light is in us. And when the light is in us, we act a certain way. 
one of the things that's very interesting that I've been studying lately, the old English phrase for worship is actually worth-ship. So when you worship something, you are saying it's worth it. When your eye is on something often, what's your treasure? Number two, what is your eye fixed on? When your eye is on something you know, often, you're saying it's worth it. You're saying it's worth it. When your eye is on something often, you're taking on its attributes, you see. And no matter where you are geographically or what you've got going, you are naturally inclined to worship what your eye is on because you are worth-shipping it all the time. You see, the next passage that we don't have time to to get into today is all about anxiety, about worry. Don't worry. Well, isn't it interesting that Jesus addresses worry after he addresses people who I may be on things that it shouldn't be? Because I don't know about you, but when my eye gets wandering, my anxiety goes up because when my worship is up, my worry is down. And then when my worry is up, my worship is down. Because here what he's saying is, I want your eye to be on me because I want you to admit I have control. You see, we live in a world that is very toxic towards fear. We build fear into people. We want people to fear. And by watching something and letting that come into your body too much, you can build fear. And I want to redefine this. I've been recently studying this in my quiet time because preparing for today, this hit me. Listen to me. Fear, if you look up in Webster Dictionary, fear will say it's an emotion aroused by impending danger. Emotion aroused by impending danger. But that doesn't really work, though. Because watch this, because there's a lot of things in life that we fear that are not impendingly dangerous to us. Like what other people think is not impendingly dangerous to us. Like we're not going to lose our life because somebody doesn't like us. Watch this. But I've kind of redefined this, this idea of fear in my own life and in sharing this with my family. This is what we've, we've kind of come to. Listen to this. Fear is an emotion that you give to something that is qualified to master your thoughts, actions, and destiny. Fear is an emotion that you give to something that is qualified to master your thoughts, actions, and destiny. But fear is something, listen to me, church, that you get from something that is unqualified to master your thoughts, actions, and destiny. 300 plus verses, Old Testament and New, God says, do not fear. But Solomon, the wisest of kings in chapter one of Proverbs, and then in 15, he says what? That you should fear the Lord because it is the beginning of all wisdom. So which one is it? Fear or don't fear? Well, the question is not fear or don't fear. The question is, what do you fear? When your eye is fixed on God and his ways, when the lamp of your body is fixed on what God is up to in the community, when the lamp of your body is fixed on his word, guess what happens? Your fear of God goes up and your fear of man goes down and you begin to operate in your gifts and you become free to do what he's called you to do. Why do we live in fear? Because our eye is on the wrong thing. It's no accident that in the middle of a mess, the author of Hebrews says, fix your eye on Jesus the author and the perfecter of your faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There's no, no accident 
that your eyes are connected to your heart. Number one, what's your treasure? Number two, what is your eye fixed on? Then lastly, he, he kind of gets a little bold and he gets to what we call down south a lot of times, meddling. He gets to meddling. He says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now you may have a King James version that says God and mammon. I kind of like that because that is actually the Aramaic phrase for a God, the God, pagan God of money. It's almost like Matthew's making a spin on this saying, hey, you can either serve the real God or you can serve the God they think's in charge of money. But last time I checked, our God's name is still on all the money. The power that money can have over you is not because you have more or less of it. It's because you think that that is actually what is providing for you. The danger of money is not that, listen to me, the danger of money is not the amount that you have of it. It's the qualities or the attributes that you give to it over you. You see, we've been given two stances on money in this life. You can either serve, listen to this, I wrote this down because this hit me hard. You can either use God to serve money, or you can use money to serve God. You see, there's only two stances. I mean, there's only two stances. Are you using God to serve money? Are you using money to serve God? It's an instrument He's given you for His glory that you can use so that it can master, it can master the things of the kingdom while it navigates out. That's why God says it's more blessed to receive. When you receive, you receive responsibility. When you give, you give responsibly, but you give in a way that empowers others. The challenge of mastery that he leaves us with here, he says, you know, you can't serve two masters. Leaves me with the last question, which most Christians need to be reminded of. And today, if you came in here and you don't know Jesus, you definitely need to be asked. Who's your master? You know, I talked a minute about fear and the fact that we give things unqualified, the ability to master over us. Let's go back to the, the hospital room for a second. You know, when you're breathing your last breath, I dare say your money's not going to help you. You know, when you're going through the, the last stages of whatever it is in your life, at that point, the master of money is insufficient. And so if we want the boldness of the church... And, and, and the excitement of the lost to be interested in the church. We've got to make sure that we describe and display actively proper mastership. You see, the worry of the prosperity gospel is not that the churches would get so big we won't know where to house people. The worry of the prosperity gospel is simply this. That we might have come to serve God but we left to serve money. That we might think that money and a big building and a big program equals success in the kingdom of God. And Jesus on his very first sermon. How about this for a first sermon? No, ain't no collection here, amen? 
His very first sermon. He's been born. He's lived 30 years. He's earned their respect. He's been baptized. He says, fellas, let's go out here on the mountain. And by the way, if any of you guys are going to be serving money, it ain't going to work for you. And he would say the same to all of us today. What's your treasure? What are your eyes fixed on? Lastly, who's your master? I was overseas a, a few years ago with a basketball team. And uh, we were in uh, Czech Republic. <laughs> and um, at the time, I've, I've learned better now with the Patriots to, to eat better. But at the time, I wasn't eating very well. Uh, I was, uh, my hair was falling out. And uh, on the gain now, I got his row gain. Amen. That's funny. That's funny. But the point is, the idea of, of eating healthy wasn't really in my mind. So anyway, we arrive in Czech Republic. We're in Prague. And I'm starving. So diagonal from our hotel is a KFC, American restaurant. I'm like, hey, we do chicken right. Amen. I'm like, let's see what we got over here. So I go over there and I said, ma'am, I need every potato wedge you got up in this piece. <laughs> I mean, I need, I, let's go. I, I need a macaroni cheese gravy. I said, I'll take a bucket. And she goes, and as I passed her my card, she goes, you're not from around here. <laughs> I said, I said, no, ma'am, I'm from South Carolina originally. She said, oh, is that by Indianapolis? I said, no, ma'am. I said, no, ma'am, that's, that's not. I said, that's in a different part of the country. She goes, oh, do you know LeBron James? I said, what, ma'am, what are you talking about? I don't understand. She goes, oh, okay, okay. She goes, do you know Peyton Manning? I said, ma'am, ma'am, no, I, I, I just want to get this chicken, honestly. I mean, just work this out, you know, amen, right? And she says, uh, but those are your champions in America. Those are your champions. And she was confused at why I didn't know the champions, which our country had exalted personally. So I went back to my hotel that night and I said, she associated with exaltation with personal relationship. Why would you exalt anything you don't know personally? Why would you exalt anything you don't know well? Why would you put it on such a pedestal for the world to see if you don't know that its attributes will never let you down? So that night I wrote a poem and I'm going to share it with you and I'm going to close with some questions on motives. But the poem goes like this. And if you haven't listened to anything I've said so far, please just listen to this. Because my belief is a lot of people miss heaven by 16 inches. They hear it here, but they don't hear it here. The poem goes like this. The debate remains aloud to find from the crowd the greatest champion of all time. So let them line up all holding their cups, determined by their nickels and their dimes. You see, quickly we will see a glorified tree of actors, politicians, and heroes. They mostly promote self and bank account wealth. It's a competition that revolves around zeros. But I dare to say the greatest champion of today is one who's been forgotten by most. He's valued to a few who sit in the pew. He was announced by the heavenly host. He was born in a stable to show that he's able to see, serve, and lead at all costs. He seeks and he feeds the deepest of needs of anyone who confesses, I'm lost. He fed and he healed. In Gethsemane, he kneeled to earn his ultimate crown. Accused by a crowd, blasphemy out loud. To a cross, they thought his kingdom would come down. For six hours, he hung. Listen to me, church. For six hours, he hung. No national anthem was sung. No ESPN coverage was given to his game. 
Alone he competed until your sin he defeated. The king of Jews was what they called him by name. The champion was graved by one he had saved, never to be heard from again. But after three days, the stone was away. In the locker room, it was emptied with sin. The greatest champion, he rose and he preached love that flows to his disciples and any of us who will listen. He preached no banner or ring or perishable thing. He preached about a home with streets that are going to glisten. The greatest champion, he's Jesus Christ, who paid full in price for all that call on his name. And the way that he walked, the way that he talked, he mastered this life and all its silly games. So let's hear a cheer. The greatest champion, he's in here. He said he would never forsake. Friends. Friends, listen. He has all the reasons. Friends, he named every season. He's the greatest champion. Let us make no mistake. What's your treasure? What do you get up thinking about? What do you get up preoccupied with? What is your eye fixed on? What is your eye fixed on? Who's your master? Who's your master? Your motives matter. I can only, I can only imagine standing before Jesus. With him being set, as the Bible tells us, as the judge. And before God, here we are, filth, filthy in sin. And almost can't even lift our head in his holiness with our heads down. He says, Jack, what do you have to say for yourself? And as I get ready to answer with my lip quivering and a bunch of excuses probably to come out as I get ready to say, and I'm going to say, Daddy, Jesus steps in. He says, he's with me. And all of a sudden, my head goes up. And I realize that my motives have been paid for. That my actions, when I stood up and sit down, stood up and sit down in church, and was there to be seen rather than there to hear. When all the times I told a half-truth, which is a whole lie. And all the times where I ran from God, but He was faster. They've been made right. And my opportunity for the revelation, if you will, of all the bad motives that Jack has, I washed white as snow so that I could spend eternity with him. But the greatest indicator, Jesus is saying here, of those going to heaven is Jesus is their treasure. Their eye is fixed on him. And he is their master. Is that true of you today? My prayer is not to have an emotional response where you just have a feeling one day, but my prayer is that you would fall so in love with Jesus, everything else in life. It's just details. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. There's so many things to thank you for. We could write a whole letter. And instead of writing a whole letter, I think what you want us to do is live a whole life. Hmm, that's convicting. Oof. Maybe it's about a scholarship we gave or, or maybe it's about something we did to feel better. But that's not great motives. And maybe what you're using is money, which is the highest thing on earth to promote the idea that there's something higher than earth. 
that wants control of your life. My prayer is that everybody within the sound of my voice would forget Jack and remember Jesus. I pray that they would have an intimate encounter with you, whether that's through a dream or John chapter 5. And I pray that that intimate encounter would lead to them falling so, so in love with you. They want to write you a thank you note for the rest of their lives. And God will have to scribble out on that thank you note. We'll have to cross out. We'll need some white out. But my prayer is this old raggedy thank you note would reach your ears. And it would be a sweet aroma, as Paul says, to your nostrils. Father, would you do work in here? Have thine own way. Have thine own way. We sure are the clay. We love you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Jack, for the beautiful word from the Lord. If you're new to Bethany, we have a special way that we give for you to respond to God. We have prayer partners who stand here today, and they're here to pray for you. If your heart, you want to respond to the message you just heard, and you want to either make Jesus the master of your life, the Bible says to believers that we must continually set apart Christ's life in our hearts. So maybe someone's here today that you need to redo that. You need to have a redo. You need to have a do-over of that experience. It's no mistake that the number one sin that's hit at in both Testaments is idolatry. Now, it's not a list of moral rules uh, that we fail to do, but the heart that idolizes things and empowers things besides God to be what only God can be. So maybe you need to pray about that. Maybe you're here today, and you just need to pray about it. So, you know, we believe everything matters here. Everything matters. That child that you don't know how to manage matters. That Those finances matter. Everything matters to God. So today we'd love to pray with you about whatever matters to you. Nobody's, nobody's guessing about why you're going to get out of your seat and come down here to be prayed for. That's entirely between you and God, whatever you want to share with a prayer partner. So I'm going to just, just say a quick prayer, and when I get done, you just come forward and be prayed for. There's communion for you available in the front and the back if you want to just enter a time of communion with God. We call this response time. I'll be back in a couple of minutes to give you an opportunity to bless the greatest champion foundation. Father, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, penetrate our hearts with the word that we just heard. Let it go from the head. Let it travel that 16 inches to our heart and let it lodge and let it bear fruit, God, and let it change our lives, not because we want to come under a, a religious system, a bondage of some, another religious system, but we want to break into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Would you come and let's enter into response time. You have been listening to the Bethany Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us online at bccma.org. Thank you, and God bless.